Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? Today, we're going to talk about textbooks and how they cover women's history or don't. And we're going to talk about women who served as spies in the Civil War. Great. Let's get into this. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Episode 9, Cross-Dressing and Spies. Brooke, we're in person. <gasps> we are in the same room. Ah! I'm so excited. I know. Seriously, that was like crazy to try and get this done over Zoom, but we did it and we, we handled, it. we handled well. Yes. Oh man. What Are is, you so grateful to be home? It, like my own bed is just like glorious. I don't know if we told, I told people over social media, but I don't know if I told people on the podcast. Yeah. So I stayed with my parents for little less than 30 days almost a month because our daycare wasn't open and I've got two little guys so they graciously took us in and hung with my boys so I could work during the day and um so I work remotely for my company so I can work from anywhere which was really helpful yeah so I got to work from beautiful Connecticut which was lovely but I was definitely missing New Hampshire and I don't know. Being up here in September is like the best time of year so I was like all right I gotta get back yeah well and like it's so, I mean, I'm sure every parent out there right now is feeling the pain that we, you were in. Yeah. And like, thankfully I have a great and- family that like was willing to jump in. Um, but that's not the case for everybody. And it's just been, everyone's kind of dealing and thank goodness the daycare is back open and my children are so excited to be back with their friends and the teachers did everything they possibly could to make sure that the school is safe and it's open and like many teachers right now that are trying to get kids back to school. I mean, you're back, right? Yep. Back with kids. Oh my goodness. So how is it going so far? It's going good. I mean, I won't, I haven't actually like taught a class yet because we've been doing orientations, but it's good. And the protocols seem appropriate and reasonable. <laughs> so I'm, I'm excited that I feel safe, which is good. That's, well, that's the most important part. I know. We have zero cases in the town that I work in and in the town that we live in. And so it seems, I'm sure there are some people who are like, what? She's in person? But like, we have no cases here. So it it does seem really safe. Yeah. And I mean, even where I was in Connecticut, they had no cases in that town either, which was very helpful. And it made me feel safe about traveling there. Of course, I didn't like get out of the car between Connecticut and New Hampshire, <laughs> which with two little like kids. Boston, like, <laughs> yeah, I was like, mass, don't touch me. <laughs> Just kidding. But it's like, yeah, you know, I didn't get out to get gas anywhere between here and there because I was like, who knows what's going on? Who knows? Yeah, yeah. no, it's good. So recently um, I was at a friend's wedding and I'm just sitting there chit-chatting away with somebody and, and all of a sudden this guy comes over to me and he's like, oh my gosh, are you the girl from the podcast? <laughs> I was like, um, it was like my first fangirl moment and I was like, yes, I have a podcast with my friend Kelsey. He's like, you guys are incredible. I'm a history nerd. I love this. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. It was so cute and like he just wanted to talk about history and I was like well I just have to like pause you I'm not the expert Kelsey is <laughs> I'm just obsessed with what she talks about um but it was just really cool to like okay, see like expert I think that's the problem yes that's the <laughs> <laughs> enough about women's history so. yes but it was like I'm not the history teacher Kelsey is but it was um he was just so sweet and very kind and like just gave us a lot of props for what we're up to which was really cool and um then he shared like how many people he shared the podcast which was was so cool and we obviously were like seeing that which is fun we've had so many cool people reach out to us and be interested in learning more about the podcast and helping us with the work which is really cool so thank you to the people that are listening and like being interested and um hanging out with us which is it's cool that you know it was an idea that you know you had and then we're here doing it but people are excited about it which is very cool yeah it's uh it's been really validating through social media just having lots of people tune in and you know remind us how important this work is to get this stuff out to people whether you're a teacher or not and um so thank you to everybody who's shared what we're doing to history teachers too because the more people more history teachers that are 
listening to this and and other podcasts that are out there on women's history um but also going to our website and accessing all the different Mm -hmm. lesson plans and i should clarify like i'm putting lesson plans up that i'm making but i also link to literally every lesson plan that's available on the internet on our website yeah which is i mean such a huge resource and that was one of the things i had a teacher reach out to me who um listens to our podcast and loves our instagram and facebook and she's basically another stalker (laughs) um but she was like i love the lesson plans that you guys put up there because it's just easy to access and if i'm like stumped on an idea um she's like i just went up there and downloaded what was there and what was available obviously made it my own which makes sense and yeah. um that's what we that's love good. like i love to like when we hear from teachers like what about this idea yeah. or could you cover this topic or how would you do that like i love when people reach out to us so i think you know there's a little plug there too of like please reach out to us if you have ideas we've gotten so many really great suggestions and yeah. um we're definitely open to more and seeing what we can cover yeah i'm very excited we have some exciting people coming to join us on the podcast yes i'm i know big teasers but we have some really incredible people i'm excited for the upcoming things for for people to listen to and get to know more about the authors that we're talking to which i'll like geek out over and then like some very cool women are joining us on the podcast we have some really cool stuff coming up and we got more history other history teachers joining us yes yeah it's gonna be really neat Okay, so, so what are we getting into this evening? So today, so the last time you and I sat down to do a podcast, we talked about the standards. Okay. And um, that is one of the great measures for, you know... These for, are the state standards. Yeah, state okay. standards and, and, and national standards as well for, like, what are people expecting of teachers in the classroom? And the same, another way that we can look at, like, how women's history is being covered in the classroom is to look at textbooks. And the first thing I want to say is that modern sort of best practice is don't use textbooks. <laughs> um, well, then why do we have them? <laughs> right. So, so, um, so the, and the reason for that is because the textbooks are notorious for not really teaching kids the things that we're trying to teach them, right? We're trying okay. to teach them to be critical thinkers, we're trying to teach And not them. teach to a book and, like, run well, through a book. The book, when you read a book, especially a book that's, like, U.S. history, world history, right? These are, like, <laughs> like this is what happened. It's it a, makes it sound like everybody agrees that this is what happened. And, cert- and some textbook authors do a really good job of getting kids to think because they embed primary sources into okay. the text, like contrasting primary sources. Um, but a lot of textbook authors have that sort of like godlike, um, <laughs> omniscient voice that's like, here's what happened, memorize <laughs> it, you know? And that's not, like, that's not what we're trying to get kids to do. Yeah. So I teach AP U.S. history, AP world history, and then general level U.S. history okay. to upperclassmen. Which I imagine come with pretty hefty textbooks. So AP, yes, and I don't use a textbook in the general level class. Okay. And the reason I don't is because that's not current practice. Yeah. And the reason I don't follow current practice in AP is because they need to know so much material that there literally is not enough time in class over the course of the year for me to teach it to them. And so the textbook is how... And I'm trying to prepare them for college where textbooks are norm. not, um, usually it's like a, a book rather than a yeah. textbook, but books are normal and reading outside of class is normal. And this is a college level class. So, so I use a textbook as sort of like a college, you know, this is a college level class. So you are going to be reading outside of class. Um, and then I also, I should say, I did my um, AP certification at St. Johnsbury Academy. And is that Vermont? It's in Vermont. Okay. It's the closest one to us here that does the certs. And it's really fun. Like it's, <laughs> like, it's like all the nerdy teachers getting together. I'm like, oh, you teach AP Calc? Cool. I can just imagine like, that room getting together. And it's like, hey, guys, let's, let's get together. Yeah. Sorry. The lunchroom's pretty hilarious. It, like, mimics most middle school lunchrooms, you know? So. Oh, like the cool kids all sitting together. It's, yeah, it's great. 
Um, so how did you spend your summer? Oh, <laughs> to this I was class. Like, hey, summer. Like, yeah, that was me. So anyway, how many times do you have to go back and get that certification? Just, uh, just once. Like, oh, that's so cool. I, so I went when I started teaching AP U.S. History, and then my school um, offers like a World Studies Humanities course that's sort of mixed language and, and history. Fun. But they don't have any world history courses and so I sort of pushed them to create AP world history and then I went back and got certified to teach it because I had like advocated for it and it was not ready <laughs> They're like to teach now it. you're in charge of this Kelsey like, great uh shoot <laughs> you're like the kid that's like can we have this thing and, and they're then like, like yeah, yeah now champion it <laughs> you're like oh I didn't mean like me in particular <laughs> right so um, the, my, one of my instructors, I asked her, or one of the other te- teachers in the room asked, like, how many chapters in these books do you require your students to read? Oh, that's an interesting question. Yeah, because, like, sometimes, like, you might cover something really well in class, so do they also need to read it in the textbook? Yeah. You know? And the instructor's answer, and, like, I don't know if she's old school, but I took it to heart, which maybe I shouldn't have. I don't know. But she was like, if you do not make them read every page in the book, then you are failing. Whoa. And I was like, okay, so I guess I should make them Did read. Did you just immediately get anxiety poops when she said that to you? <laughs> Like, okay, I'll teach all the books. Everything you say, I will do. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and then she said it with such intensity. I was like, okay, like, I guess I have to do that. So, oh my gosh. Um, so I do, I do require them to read a lot. I do occasionally skip chapters that I know that I broke I, the rule. All right, I won't tell. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Don't tell anyone except for the, the 5,000 <laughs> listeners. <laughs> hey, guys. This is a secret between all of us. Let's keep it, please. Please. I don't require every page. Oh, my God. Um, of course, my students will be like, she makes us read every single page, but they're lying to you. They yeah, lie. don't interview Kelsey's students. They're a bunch of liars. <laughs> Thieves. Hoodlums. Of course, they're probably listening. So oh, great. what's up, guys? What's up? We love you. Yeah, wear your mask. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so textbooks are not great and they don't facilitate like inquiry learning and that's sort of the idea. And so by teaching with primary sources, not only are you teaching inquiry learning because kids are reading sources that are saying different things yeah. and they have to think about what source is more believable, what source is not believable like that's great and like I want them to think about that all day long because think about like you know like right now we're in the middle of a campaign season and you've got the New York Times saying one thing you've got Fox News saying another thing oh gosh yeah this is a this is a thing that every adult has to do kids need to be prepared to do it and so let's practice with something that's like not emotional you know like the Civil War happened a long okay maybe that's still emotional uh, <laughs> feels relatively current. Feels like it happened yesterday. Um, but, you know, like... History, Something that feels removed. It feels removed from our present enough that we can we can try to be objective and look at the sources. And then, what you know, hopefully that translates into our current world. Okay. So, that's the big thing, is just don't use textbooks. Okay, so what are we using instead? <laughs> All of these things. So, so the the thing is the thing that gets hard is that then it puts the onus on the teacher to know the sources to go to to bring them into class. Well, I mean, let's think about teachers though. In general, none of them really got into teaching so they could teach by a book. They got in there because they want to be dead poet society. They want to be the inspiring person. They want to, totally. you know, build kids up and they want to, you know, really get them nourishing for education and and thought and. You know, yeah. I, it's rare that you meet someone that's like, here's your book. Here's your book. Right. So, okay. So the problem, though, is that in a lot of schools, they do require you to have a textbook. And in a lot of schools, like, that textbook matters. And so, sure. And it is, this is, this is how history is going to be presented. And there are textbooks that are good, and there are textbooks that are bad. And when it comes to... So, it, it, so in big picture, when a teacher is evaluating a textbook, what I would encourage... So, what, first thing, if you have an opportunity to purchase 
textbooks. Yeah. Um, which I have, fortunately I work for a relatively wealthy school district. The kids aren't wealthy, but the school is. So I've had... Because you are in kind of like a vacation land where there's a lot of second homeowners. Lake money. Lake money. So they invest in the town, but they don't have kids that go to that school, which is Correct. helpful. Yeah. So we, um, we have... Uh, so I've, I've purchased textbooks a couple times. And so when you're looking at a textbook and you're trying to decide, do I get this one or do I get this one, you know? Yeah, um, that must be kind of a difficult process. It's a really challenging process. And so what I do is I skim through and I look for the textbooks that have primary sources embedded in them. Okay. And um, I, I use, in my AP World class, I use a book called Ways of the World, which is actually right in front of Brooke right now. It's holding up my mic stand. Yeah. It's lovely. It's very, it's <laughs> it's very thick. It's not its typical purpose. But <laughs> um, that book is a really, really great book. At the end of every chapter, they actually have like five different contrasting primary sources. And so, you know, the typical like end of the chapter questions for that book all the end of the chapter questions are primary source based Mm. using the materials that are right there and then you use the content that you just read about to um to evaluate those primary sources um when it comes to women that book is actually really awesome because almost every chapter they spend at least a page page and a half just talking about women and gender in that time. Well, way to go, Robert W. Stair and Eric W. Strayer. Strayer. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't learn how to read yet. So, Eric W. Nelson, nice work. Nice job, gentlemen. And, and I, I was really impressed. They cited some of the women whose books I've read, which was really exciting. So, um, so they, did, they did a really good job. So, looking it through the book and making sure they include primary sources... We also have to remember that we have diverse students in the room, diverse learners in the yeah. room. So um, how many images are in there? How many maps? Give how me many, all like, the pictures. Sets, right? Um, because there are lots of ways to learn historical material, and it doesn't have to always be text-based. So is it packed full of that stuff? You can also evaluate it, like, literally how many pictures of women are in this book? How many pictures of black <laughs> Can you people? Google that? Or are you counting? So I literally have have done studies. I did one this summer with a couple oh, of students. Oh, that's cool. And we literally just count how many women are mentioned, how many women are pictured, how many women are quoted or cited in a How many source. books did you, re- like, tell me all about the study. So let's, let's hold on my study. Okay. Because I want to tell you about studies that preceded the one I did. Oh, okay. okay. So, um, and doing a literature review essentially on textbooks was really hard because all this type of information is buried. Like it was really, I like, I've been researching women's history for literally years and I've been looking for things like this and it took me a long time to find one study that cited all the other studies and I eventually like found them. Okay. Um, but okay. So Trekker is pretty much the person her name's Janice Law Trekker she basically she's the person that everybody cites first and in 1971 she did a study where she basically looked at um are women's topics being taught in these in these okay. textbooks she evaluated so she was the you know first pilot into this I, I I don't know if she's first like I said it was really hard to find this type uh, of okay. stuff but Right in the heart of, like, the feminist movement. It yeah. kind of makes sense in 1971 that she might be one of the first Kick to off this, this yeah. Um, and basically, or at least study it academically, right? Okay. And so she basically concluded that topics in the women's sphere, sphere were absent. Like, if it's not politics, military, right? Like, all the things we've talked about. Right, the then it's not, before, yeah, it's not it's, there. It's not in the textbooks. Um, she said that even in cases where women and men worked jointly on a mission, women were excluded and men who were working on that mission were included. I'm sure this surprises none of our listeners. Right. Eyes are rolling, but... It reminded me of our conversation with Danielle last week where, um, you know, the women's, like, lead it, like, women led the civil rights movement and then the NIA, like, basically took over and excluded them from the bus boycott leadership. Right. So um, so that, that's basically what she found, but on tons of subjects. So it cracks me up because it's not that women aren't doing stuff. It's like literally in the editing they process. They got cut they out. cut. So, <laughs> like, yeah. Anyway. In 1986, Mary Kay Thompson-Tetralt... Um, 
basically looks at a bunch of different textbooks and she uses this like feminist assessment of a textbook that's like four tiers okay. of um of assessment and um it's a huge and it's a really interesting theory where basically at first it's just like are you know do they have that like side bulb about women that's like oh yeah and like you know rosa parks did da 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 <laughs> like do they mention their names at all even if it's a side measure then the next part is like in the textbook do they say like here's what men were doing and here's what women were doing and the ways of the world book that i was just telling you about they kind of do that where it's sort of like here's the sort of general themes oh yeah and what women were doing was all of these things right okay so it's sort of this like like she calls it like bifocal like you're looking at the worlds as if they're not integrated yeah right as if like my husband's life does not impact me at all (laughs) it's an interesting topic (laughs) i know um so and like one of the interesting and she also points out several like weird facts because they were like in one of the blurbs in a textbook they were talking about how during the industrial revolution there's all these improvements to technology that like improved everybody's daily life and daily work and she said that the these textbooks did not value women's work at all so like domestic labor wasn't even like calculated in that and so despite all the technological revolutions that are happening right in out like outside the domestic sphere there's basically none of that is happening in the domestic sphere and so while men's work is getting easier yeah women's work has not changed and so on average a woman was working 51 hours a week and like in domestic labor right because everything was harder right you hand washed laundry you like hand scrubbed your floors i mean you had to go out to your yard kill a chicken bring (laughs) it in pluck the feathers and then put it in the oven that's a five-hour process right or like go to the butcher because there's no like preservatives right yeah no and you're doing that daily daily right you're not doing big grocery shopping like we are now right so her point was they don't give it any attention and they, because they don't give it any attention, they make these claims that everything's getting better, but for women it wasn't, right? It wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't changing. And, and like, so anyway, she, it's, so she has this sort of like bifocal approach and then she talks about sort of like these higher levels where not only are you integrating, right? So it's happening, like, we're talking about how women and men's lives, fun fact, impact each other. What? I mean, <laughs> shocking information. <laughs> um, but that also, so, like, tell these stories at the same time. And then... And just then, blew my mind. <laughs> they knew each other? Right. And then the other thing she was talking about as sort of, like, the final tier is you have to exchange, uh, explain women's thinking in the process and so um so like Seneca Falls for example a lot of textbooks are like so women's suffrage like they all just showed up at Seneca Falls one day like like there was no planning or like thought before like this is bothering us we should get together we should get together (laughs) and like what is bothering you and how did you how did you have the like the like cognitive breakthrough where you went you know what that's wrong. Yeah. Right? I don't deserve to be treated like that. <laughs> so anyway, so like talk about women's thinking and women's thinking is entirely excluded. And and get into individuals. Like Elizabeth Cady Stanton was one of the leaders of that movement. Like what was it for her that was so hard? Yeah. Talk like why did her story and her journey to that day matter? Right. How did she get there? Like why why did she care enough to like do that okay who else do we have over there okay so um in 1997 the american historical association which i'm a member of oh are you i am um and i i I don't (laughs) think that most people most history teachers are i think they are part of like nhcss or ncss um because that's social studies broadly but i in new hampshire there's yeah there's probably ss nationally right okay um but i really wanted to be current with 
scholarship on history and so they send out like a great journal every every quarter or whatever so i get those and that's nice um (laughs) membership for journals yeah i like it i'm a nerd um so they came (laughs) out with a guide a statement with no measure to like actually evaluate whether textbooks are doing that but basically they said that if you are going to write a textbook it needs to do these things. It needs to reinforce high-quality history by empowering students to do history, right? Inquiry, right? What we've been talking okay, about. Okay, okay. So every, every activity that's built in there, it needs to get kids thinking. Um, it needs to teach critical thinking and how to understand bias. Right. right? Which yep. includes the textbook itself. Yep. Right? Because the textbook is not immune to, to bias. bias. Right. Um provide continuous chronological content showing continuity and change over time which is like such an ap phrase also by the way um but basically like these are some themes and here how here's how it was in this time and here's how it is today you yeah know, and like all the way through um and then reflect current scholarship and it has to be peer reviewed a lot of textbooks have typos in it and it's like if this was really like reviewed well like these would not still be in here right um it's surprising when it comes from a publisher like editors at publishing houses are diehard <laughs> and there's yep. spelling errors it's killing me oh man um and it needs to include the factual experiences of diverse people so broad so broad so and how what's factual (laughs) who's fact yeah exactly whose narrative are we going with there that's really hard to kind of create those tiers and there's a lot of them there oh there's a lot of them there and then also when you're thinking about it it's like how do you then do you start with one make sure they all have them then start with the second like how do you even go about making that research right and, you know, I'm finding it hard when you say diverse people, like... Who are you speaking of? Who are we talking to? Like, like... Underrepresented you know, minority groups? On Instagram, reach out to us, and she's like, I hope you're doing Jewish women's history. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's a great theme. We need to include <laughs> that, too. You know, and, and so, like, when we say diverse peoples, we mean, you know, we mean white people, we mean black people, we mean indigenous people, we mean Asian Americans. Yeah, all women. backgrounds, all creeds, all races. All of it. And 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 all, all sexualities. Yes. And so that's a lot to, like, it could be over, like, overwhelming. And as a history teacher, I'm constantly having, you have to cut. And so how do you decide who makes it and who doesn't? And textbooks are in the same boat, right? Um, unfortunately for them, they have many pages, right? So yeah. you, can, you can do a lot more. We get snowed out and like, you know, whatever. Well, and like if you're trying to approach things to get kids to be critical thinkers, you're not going identical to the book. You're trying to challenge them with the the content that's available with other materials too to balance that out. And so you're you're going beyond a b c d you yeah. know you're going out a2 a3 a4 and then that's half a year yeah i found a really cool lesson plan that's targeted for elementary schools oh um and which i like those are harder to find in these types of i would imagine subjects. yeah and so i found this really cool one where you basically have your elementary school students evaluate their textbook that they're using for social studies whatever whatever clever and it's it's awesome so um but yeah getting kids to really be be thinking about this so they wrote they wrote this guide the the american historical association writes this guide in 1996 in 2006 um this girl named Kay chick um basically was like yeah so you wrote that but like what do you mean by that and when you say diverse people you know women are people and they are part of the political minority so do you mean like textbooks need to cover women (laughs) and also do you mean that like do you mean 50 50 yeah like what are we talking about here and um and i mean Earlier studies, like the Trekker study, found that textbooks cover women that, like, most women, like, they're not part of women's movements. They're not part of women's women's history and, and sphere. They were talking about women like, like, first ladies, right? Yeah. Who, like, 
these are women who by no necessarily no choice of their own were put into this position right exactly and um and maybe they were you know sort of that political wife who was super excited about a career in politics but um but textbooks overemphasize first ladies it's like the only woman that existed at the time the way they make it out it's like there was eleanor roosevelt leading the charge she was the only one making things for the home run it's like um (laughs) there was a lot of wives mothers sisters women that were part of that effort in that time period so she's not the only alive right and it also it's just like classic top-down hierarchical history like the top woman she's the first lady so let's like let's talk about her um so so Kay is um Kay Chick is basically uh she's not convinced so she starts doing um quantitative analysis so the earlier women are doing more qualitative like how are they talking about women and so textbooks have improved in how they're talking about women over time but in terms of quantity not so much right so she her study was much smaller she looked at really just three textbooks one elementary school one middle school one high school and she basically was looking at how many women are being covered and and at each grade level okay she found that in elementary school um fewer topics in general are covered and that makes sense right right these kids need like foundational learning foundational learning and then by high school they are exposed to a ton more like people and so um and so you would think that at least proportionally or like as a percentage it would remain the same from elementary school to high school but what she found is that elementary schools actually do a really good job of introducing characters and i remember learning about like helen keller and oh sure um like harriet tubman in elementary school and then i got to high school and it was like all white men that i was learning about yeah basically like modern economics i feel like was what was covered all the time it's like we get it okay cool 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 so rockefeller did stuff next (laughs) yeah exactly so the the um the high school textbooks that she studied textbook single that she studied basically um was like as a percentage few there were fewer women in it than in elementary school okay um so that's a problem so this summer so i sort of picked up on her theme and i was like okay let's look at this quantity like they might be doing a better job talking about women and introducing women's concepts um but let's look at this in terms of quantity and so i had students look at three different ap u.s history textbooks that i have and these were textbooks that were given to me by the publishers when i was at the ap seminars okay because they want they want they encourage you yeah they're like here take these books for free so that you order them for your class um kind of sweet (laughs) i have like tons of textbooks in my closet and so i was like all right let's look at them you're so sexy kels (laughs) tell me what else is in your closet Okay. Do you have just unlimited caps and gowns in there? (laughs) What are those things? Tassels? (laughs) Not the sexy kind, the ones that go on hats. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So these are are, um, books that I was given after 2015. And um, in the study that we did, let's just look at some numbers. one so one one textbook for example wait how many kids did you have toiling away in the summer hours? <laughs> just two and they were amazing like just amazing amazing girls they were so hard good um, for them they're amazing one um, nice nice young women that want to hang out with their teacher in the summer and read textbooks <laughs> <laughs> now i'm a little concerned <laughs> so um total men so in one of the books this was in the american promise there were 1,073 men mentioned by name in the book. Okay. Okay. There were 255 women mentioned that by is name. a huge difference. Huge difference. In another book, it was 909 men and 189 women. What? 
It's yeah. like they didn't even exist. It's like they didn't even exist. So the quantity there just like tells you that this is like this is. Really I'm sorry. Every textbook should start with "Women gave birth to you. That's why you're here." Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> Next, and that succeeds all of the rest. Right. Like this is where we start right. birth, yeah. and then you move on. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Did none of these men? Yeah. Did none of these men have mothers? <laughs> they were just immaculate conception. Um, I look. You know, of course, I want to know like images and primary sources and all these other things that you know are helpful in teaching. Kids okay. All right. So, um, in one of the books, three hundred images of men, eighty-six images of women. In another book, it was. Um, 111 images of men. That book in general just had less pictures. Um, they had 33 pictures of women. Um, primary sources that were included. 31 primary sources authored by men. 13 authored by women. Like half. Um, 70 in another book authored by men. And 19 authored by women. This is infuriating. It's infuriating because it's like by the numbers, we know that it's that the scales are are skewed towards measurements that women will never like if you don't if you don't talk about the women's sphere, if you don't value women's work, if you don't discuss improvements in domestic labor, if you don't talk about birth, menstruation, all these things that people want to avoid talking about, but dominated women's lives then, then you're missing these it. numbers are going like I don't even need to read the content to know that they're not talking about the women's sphere because if they were it would be equal or way closer or way closer right that's really frustrating and it's also like it makes you think that women didn't exist and that's not the case women were very much there they were very much doing things at that time that were significant to moving the needle forward in all of those subjects, politics, mark, like everything that you've covered. Mm-hmm. They were there. They were there. Men didn't do this alone. <laughs> and I think um, we talked, when we were talking about the standards, sort of the default is white women. Sure. So like in the absence of this stuff, white women sort of pop forward and we found the same patterns in the textbooks where white women were mentioned by name with significantly higher frequency than black women and not even like remotely accurate to the percentage difference like right like more American like this is an American history textbook okay more American women are white so there should be more white women mentioned but it should be at least proportional right yeah and um and that just like wasn't the case so so this is a really just like a really objective measure of a textbook and the textbooks just aren't covering aren't talking about women so when we're looking at textbooks from a women's history perspective the measurement is really just like are you talking about them and like later we can get into like are you biasing right like are you talking about just first ladies and wives and mothers and or are you talking about all these other people and their unique experiences um you know if you wanted to evaluate a textbook in terms of like racism and other things like yeah like you can look and see if they use inappropriate language when they're talking about which you would hope anything that was recently published wouldn't but you'd be surprised i'm sure it's bad yeah so uh, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back to talk about women who served during the Civil War as spies. Oh, all right. Let's do this. For lesson plan ideas and how to teach women's history, visit our website, www.remedialherstory.com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Remedial Herstory. If you think what we're doing is needed, please consider joining our Patreon community. Patreon allows you to sponsor a podcast with a small donation. Patrons get access to bonus materials, extended episodes, insider information, and gear. Patrons who give at the $10 tier will receive a Remedial Herstory sticker. We want to sincerely thank some of our patrons for their contributions. Kent and Jamie Heckel from Ohio have been some of our biggest fans from the beginning. Thank you so much for your contribution. 
And a huge thank you to Bridget Erlinson from Connecticut. As an educator, your endorsement and passion for equitable education means a great deal. Thank you for your support and endorsement. You can find a link to our Patreon page on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. Or you can go to patreon.com and search for Remedial Herstory. All right, welcome back. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about women who served as spies during the Civil War. I'm so excited for this topic. Very fun. Yeah. Most, so it might surprise a lot. So a lot of the women who served during the Civil War served as women and were spies in their role. Okay. Um, notably, there was an unnamed black woman who, um, she was a laundress in, um, the capital in Richmond and she worked uh you know like near Robert E. Lee and so she would leak information on the clothesline um from inside Robert E. Lee who's the general um you know yep. the uh, confederate general during the civil war she would leak information out using different codes on the clothesline? On the clothesline. So she, you know, the red shirt meant whatever, and the black shirt meant da-da-da-da. And she would, like, move things up and down the line. if Depending like, on. As, like, where people were moving and, you know, that type of thing. Oh, my gosh, I love that. Yeah, so, um, there, you know, a lot of women just did things like that in, in their jobs. Yeah, S- still a huge role in that time. Yeah, super, super important. Um, a lot of women during the Civil War served as nurses. It was uh, sort of like cutting edge. Clara Barton, who founded the American Red Cross, yep. she was really cool because she would like cross battlefields as like bullets are flying around her and just like <laughs> drag men off and like saw their legs and like like she was awesome. That sounds pretty badass. She's pretty badass. Like Dorothea Dix, who went on to accept, you know to advocate for the insane later. Yeah. Um, she served as a Civil War nurse under. under Clara Barton. Um, So there's a lot of women who did really amazing things like that. And then there are countless numbers of women who, during the war, put on pants and cut their hair and pretended to be men and served. What? And, yeah, and it's like this this sort of, like, unknown bit of history. So... All I'm imagining in my mind right now is Mulan. Yeah. <laughs> Which is probably, like, very inaccurate. But, like, yeah. my, my dad can't serve, and someone has to go from our family, so we must dress up like a man. Yeah. Well, so, so for a lot of these women, it, it speaks to all the problems that women were facing in the 1800s that we were talking about when we were talking right. about suffragists. Like, like, they don't have rights to property. And so right. how do you get those rights? Um, there was one woman, her, she was born, her name was Sarah Edmondson. She cut her name to Edmonds because she f- ran away from home and hated her dad. Um, but <laughs> Get she, it. She it is known and she got a pension because of, she served during the Civil War under the name Frank Thompson. Um, but she, she, you know, she started dressing as a man way before the Civil War. Okay. Because she was like, I need, need a pockets. Job. <laughs> I need pockets in my pants, and that would be lovely. Number one reason why women dress as men <laughs> pockets. No, she was like, I need a job. Okay. And all the good jobs go to men, so if I just look like a man, then I can get a good job. I mean,. I like her theory. Yeah. It sounds like it worked out for her. So it's like, it was more of like an economic thing. Okay. Now, I don't know, and I think we should probably put in here, people in, you know, prior to our time Mm -hmm. did not have the language for trans, queer. Right. Gay. You know, there was no labels then. There weren't. It was just all one bucket. Sarah Edmonds went on to write a book about her experience as a soldier in the Civil War, and so we got a pretty intimate picture of her thoughts and feelings about the war. And it's pretty clear that she 
considered herself a she and that she saw herself as a, a woman in soldier's man's clothing. But that's not true for all the women that fought in the war. We also know that Sarah Edmonds encountered other women that were on um, the battlefield. She found and treated as a nurse, she found and treated um, another woman who was serving in the war and she only knew that it was a woman after inspecting her body, right? But there are lots of other women who, who knows how they would have preferred to be documented and maybe being a man was how they would have preferred. And so historians need to be really gentle with those topics as they dive into them. One thing that's interesting about Frank Thompson's story is that after about a year of dressing as a man, and mm-hmm. he was like a traveling uh, Bible salesman, he, clever. Went, <laughs> he went back home to his, his, his childhood home, and he knocked on the door. I, don't, I guess this is like common. People would like give strangers food, but his mother took him in. And fed him dinner, fed her, him, I don't know what he yes. prefer, but dinner, and, you know, dressed as a man, and mom, at the end of the dinner, was, like, said to his younger sister, like, you know, this gentleman looks so much like your sister who left a year ago. <laughs> Stop it. Yeah, and he didn't say anything. He didn't correct, he didn't tell his mother, he didn't correct her. So interesting. Yeah, without hearing directly from the source what they would prefer as their pronouns. You have a hard time. Right. Um, But before we get into women who cross-dressed during the Civil War, cross-dressing was very common throughout world history. Right. And We've seen it show up time and time again in some of the other narratives that you were talking about when we talked about the medical history. Right. Yeah. So, um, Hypatia comes to mind. Yes, yeah. She gave, you know, she was a famous lecturer. She dressed as a, she dressed in male, like, robes, mm-hmm. um, to show that, to, as, as, like, a status thing. Like, and so was it male or was it just that profession? Right. right. Um, in around the same time as the Civil War, Dr. James Barry, he's a very famous example. He was one of the first people to perform a C-section. He was serving as a doctor for um, the British Empire, performs a C-section. When he dies, he basically says, please bury me in the clothes that I die in. Yeah, like, don't do an autopsy on me. Don't do an autopsy. Don't don't look at me naked. (laughs) Essentially. And turns out that Dr. James Barry was biologically female. There was evidence that Dr. James Barry gave birth that he had, like, stretch marks on his stomach from wow. when he had given birth at some point in his life. Some people think it was, like, there's evidence that he was raped by his uncle as a kid, and so he gave birth to this, like... Incestual child. Incestual child. Um, and who knows, you know, if that was motivation to get the heck out of there, you know? And yeah. I don't know, or whatever. And I think the fact that he requested to be buried in his male clothes and, yeah and he, know, that's how he wanted to be known as and presented right and he didn't want you know his work and his legacy to be challenged um but, but the trans community does really celebrate him yeah and and hold him up as an icon yeah totally um, there are lots of examples like this in in world history and a lot of times you don't find out about it until after these people die dr james Barry's, you know the nurse basically was like i'm gonna i'm gonna do an autopsy i want to look i want to know like oh he, interesting he curious or something so you know he had requested to be buried in his clothes but he wasn't they they changed his clothes when he died um there, I had a really cool opportunity in college to study at the Library of London, and I got to wear... <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> I got to wear, um, you know, white gloves and go in and look through historic newspapers from, like, the 1500s, and... Um, you know, just touching these old newspapers was so... I can just see you doing this and, like, nerding out so hard. Yeah, it was so cool. (laughs) So I was looking for newspapers that were talking about women who cross-dressed. Oh, okay. In 
like Shakespearean era because Shakespeare talks oh my gosh cross-dressing all the time all the time right so women are cross-dressing all the time in Shakespeare so how common is this and basically what I concluded is it's common enough because in newspapers people are like ranting about how bad this is for society like women need to stay in their space stay on their side and yeah it's like corrupting the morals of society and you know it was a way that women could like sneak off with their lovers at night you know because they wouldn't be questioned for being out at night oh yeah the whole chaperone theory like you don't need one if you're a man right (laughs) so so but then of course there's the economic thing which we saw with with frank thompson right um so there's lots of reasons why people did it and i just want people to understand that this is something that has happened throughout world history it's not like randomly like oh so civil war i guess we start now yeah no you can pick it from any point yeah um, so I, so I want, we, we can't not mention Harriet Tubman. No, I mean, she basically, that should be where you start. Yeah, you start with Harriet You Tubman. start with Harriet Tubman and you <laughs> keep going until you get to Rosa Parks. Right. <laughs> if you haven't seen the new movie Harriet, you oh my gosh. need to. It is so good. I... I watched it. Let's do an entire podcast about watching that movie. Oh my god! So I watched it on an airplane. (gasps) How could you watch that with other people around? I never. At the end, I was bawling. Yeah, no. I can't watch things on planes where I know I'm just gonna ugly cry through the whole thing. Yeah. But Harriet. Yeah. I mean, you were asking for it. I was asking for it. So anyway, you wanted strangers to see you. (laughs) <laughs> ugly cry get some th- some sympathy drinks from other passengers you're like i'll take four tequilas over here for harriet <laughs> so that film uh is is really great super it's what's nice about it is that it's not rated too highly so yeah so you can you watch can, it you can watch it in a classroom which is really great um, do you think that was intentional because that's kind of awesome i hope it was because it was such it was, i mean because how do how do you teach about slavery and the civil war in a and pg-13 you way, can't you yeah know? so and th- but they did they figured out how to like decrease blood violence whatever but still like make it very clear that this is going on that's so, awesome harriet tubman uh escapes from slavery and she uh lives near philadelphia and um, one of the big themes, and what's hard in you know history classes, you really want kids to understand cause and effect. Right. And so the big thing is that prior to the Civil War, they passed um, some fugitive slave laws that basically mandated that everybody in the North is a slave catcher. And um, if you see a slave and you don't turn them in, you are culpable. But if you live in one of those border states, like where Harriet Tubman was at the time, she was in Philadelphia, um, you you were probably more vulnerable to slave catchers because they're, you know, you're right, you're on, right the on the border. Yeah, it's like being in Maryland. It's like you're right there in the Mason-Dixon. Yep. It's like, okay, this is where it gets scary. Right. <laughs> And so when these fugitive slave laws are passed, she starts going back and getting people out. And um, I know for for people listening who don't know Harry Tubman, which you would imagine that everyone's that's like a state standard that's been in the textbook. Yeah, she's number one. Yeah. So um, she she uh, is interesting because she gets the nickname Moses. Yes. There's. You know, there's sort of the, like, biblical reference there to Moses, who leads the Jews out of bondage, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, into the desert and, and saves them. So that biblical reference to her being Moses is interesting. But then there's also this sort of, like, gendered reference, because you basically are... First of all, the slave catchers were looking for a man who was getting all these these slaves out. out. They weren't looking for a woman. They didn't believe that a woman could do this. And in war, that's a reoccurring theme. She, during the Civil War... So Civil War breaks out, you know, after this. During the Civil War, she is the um, first, and I think the only woman, to command... Um, the army yes. and, and like lead a lead a mission to get slaves out of bondage and she's responsible for freeing like you know numbers like figures vary but around 750 people on this one mission wow she, she said that there were women like 
carrying their babies with like three in tow, you know, and just, just like everyone's going to her. And Aww. but she led, you know, she led the U.S. military down because she was she knew more about this area than anybody else. Yeah, she's been there. She knows the back routes of everywhere. Okay, so the Confederacy also had spies working for them. The most famous is probably Rose Greenhow. Have you ever heard of her? No. Okay. She was known as um, Wild Rose. Uh, That was sort of her, her nickname. That's a fun name. She was sort of a wealthy woman who lived in Washington, D.C., and used her position um, to sneak information to the Confederates. And um, she basically, not only did she leak information, but she sort of ran a spy ring of people who, like, worked underneath her. Like other women? Other women and and men. Um, So she sort of, like, she was the ringleader of this, like, gang gang of spies um she got some critical information in 1861 and um this was about the union's um attack on manassas virginia which um was the where bull run the battle of bull run happened she sent a 16 year old courier her name was betty duval uh 20 miles through union territory with this message like a coded message tucked in her hair and it got all the way to the confederates and um jefferson davis later said that they and basically credited their success to her leaking that information and getting it to them bell boyd was also a confederate spy and she um lived in virginia and had really strong southern loyalties um she became a notorious spy for the confederacy leaking tons of information um and then eventually the union basically found her and so she spent a lot of time yeah she spent a lot of time in prison actually and somehow i don't know if she's just like stunningly beautiful or like like i don't really know what like qualities this woman possesses but Somehow she gets them to the the prison the guards watching her to get information out. Like she still what? continues to leak information out from within prison. I mean, so good, good for her. She's incredible. There are two really great books that I've read about women who served as spies during the Civil War. Okay. One of them was called Amazing Women of the Civil War. It was written by Webb Garrison, and this is a uh, bit older, um, but he goes into detail um, on all sorts of women, and then, uh, like, including Claire Barton and, and okay. whatnot, but he talks about these women who took up arms for, you know, for the war, and um, many of them were probably buried, you know, it, where where they died right. without... Any, markers or anything and without any acknowledgement that they're, they were female right? right because people probably didn't know um and so so that's is that's a pretty cool book and then there's another one by karen abbott called liar temptress soldier spy i mean all of my favorite words <laughs> in a title <laughs> in a title <laughs> like yes <laughs> yeah and that one's really cool too um and super rich in primary source well that one's really rich in in primary source material so women during the civil war uh, you know take up arms to get pensions right you can get a military yeah. pension for serving in a war um there were a lot of benefits like there were like the homestead act encouraged you know like gave um anybody who served during the union or d- for the union can like get know, land, get land and all yeah that. like this is a great opportunity for women to get land um um there's probably also like following lovers into yep. war right and so women are going off to war with with their significant other um, there are women serving as as nurses. There are women that, um, you know, for all the same patriotic reasons that men go off to war, like, yep. women feel those things too. And so going off for the cause. I can't imagine if you and I lived in that time that we wouldn't have just been like, all right, we're in. How do we be a spy? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. 
Okay, so I wrote a lesson plan uh, about the book Nurse and Spy in the Union Army, uh, which was a book that Sarah Edmonds, a.k.a. Frank Thompson, wrote about her time in the Civil War. Um, I think it would be really cool to contrast her life experience in the war with Harriet Tubman. So that's an option as well. Um, and basically that you can kind of like ask kids to reflect on what it would have been like to be a woman with this sort of double burden that all the soldiers are fearing for their lives or scared for, you know, whatever it is. Um, but they are also experiencing the, the fear of what if I get caught? Yeah. Right? What does that look like? Is this a dishonorable discharge or is this a whipping? Right. Like what is or what is a, this? like a rape or they take your home or your children or anything else that's happening to you in your life. Right. Oh, man. I yeah. bet that's awesome. Thanks, Kelsey. I'm Brooke Sullivan. I'm Kelsey Eckert. See you next time. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.